Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome once again to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Ranjani Donaraj, a U.S. Army War College fellow at Denver University and your host for today's podcast. This is the final episode for what's been a three-part series on Afghanistan, a war that I believe has more applicability moving forward than some think. In the first episode, we discussed building armies. The last episode focused on assessing them. And today we discuss Afghanistan's impact to the civil-military relationship. Afghanistan presented notable chapters of civil-military engagement, whether it was neglect under the Bush administration, President Obama feeling boxed into decisions by the military during his administration, vacillation in the Trump administration, or President Biden dismissing enduring military options for complete withdrawal. There are plenty of examples of military and civilian leaders talking past each other or failing to meet expectations. The tenor of the final Senate Armed Services Committee hearing on the conclusion of military operations in Afghanistan on September 28, 2021, reeked of disappointment with unsatisfactory responses for how we ended up with a failed strategy, inaccurate assessments, and security forces that had no will to fight. So where do we go from here? How do we rebuild a civil-military relationship that distinguishes the United States amongst the democracies of the world? Joining me today for this discussion are Lieutenant General Retired Doug Lute, the former U.S. Ambassador to NATO and Deputy National Security Advisor on Iraq, Afghanistan, and South Asia under both Presidents Bush and Obama, and Dr. Kerry Lee, the co-director of the Civil Military Relations Center and chair of the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College. Ambassador Lute and Dr. Lee, welcome to the War Room. It's good to be with you. Great to be with you. Ambassador Lou, you sat in a place that had some perspective. Did 20 years of war and the collapse of Kabul have an impact on civil-military relations? Well, I think without question. I mean, a whole generation of both civilian leaders and military leaders lived the wars in first Afghanistan and then later Iraq. So without question, uh, this had to uh, influence them. Um, Look, there were hundreds of direct and indirect engagements, civil military engagements, civil military um, vignettes, if you will. And I think that undoubtedly these interactions uh, had both personal and professional impact on both sides of the equation, on both the civilian side and the military. Dr. Lee, what is your assessment of the current state of civil military relations? So like any good professor, I'm gonna say that there's some good and there's some bad. Um, today, I think that elite level civil military relations is probably the healthiest that we've seen it in a while. There's, um, a real emphasis right now on going through good decision-making processes and strategy-making processes in a way that, uh, we haven't seen. And, uh, I think that has a lot to do with the fact that, you know, much of the last five years was very irregular in national security decision-making processes. And so there's been a real focus to reinvigorate that relationship and an explicit effort by both civilian and military leaders to build trust in strategy-making. That being said, there's still a lot to work on, and we see that there are many who are concerned about it across the uh, across the spectrum of kind of political commentators and uh, retired uh, retired generals and, and general officers, uh, among others. And we see this in the open letter to War on the Rocks that was published last fall, uh, reinvigorating principles of civilian control or kind of reminding uh, many of us about what civilian control looks like. Um, civil military relations got a shout out in the national security strategy for what I think is probably the first time in the history of NSSs. They say, we will maintain our foundational principle of civilian control of the military, recognizing that healthy civil military relations rooted in mutual respect are essential to military effectiveness. Um, 
and there's been a numerous calls for kind of increased education on civil military relations. What are they worried about? They're worried about civilian control. They're worried about the politicization of the military, um, the declining American people's trust in the military, a recruiting crisis that is causing huge problems for the army right now, and an ever increasing civil military gap. So there's still a lot to work on. Yeah, in the uh, SASC hearing that I mentioned earlier, you could definitely sense the frustration as senators asked both Se- Secretary Austin and General Milley, you know, how do, we, how do we hear from you guys year after year that this is going to be the year, this is going to be different, only for it not to be? Um, I wonder what you guys think civilian leaders felt was lacking from military judgment or assessments during the war in Afghanistan. Well, Raj, let me let me just first echo some of what Kari just said. Look, I think good civil military relations rely on at least three fundamentals. Um, first, policy. You know, there may be disputes, there may be legitimate disputes and disagreements over policy, um, but a respectful uh, discourse, a respectful dialogue over policy differences, I think is fundamental. And here, I think Elliot Cohen's got it right. He talks about an unequal dialogue, uh, meaning that uh, take the first word or the second word first, dialogue. There is actually a conversation going on between civil and military leaders, but it's unequal to the extent that even going all the way back to the Constitution, um, uh, we we have a system of civilian control of the military. So the military here are the subordinates uh, in this dialogue. And so I think policy is one aspect. The second is people. Look, there's no denying that you have individuals with past experiences, egos, uh, ambitions, all mixed into this. So there's a sort of interpersonal relationship dynamic to civil military relations. And then the the third one, and here I really want to echo what Kerry just said about process. One of the ways we get past some of these challenges is to have a predictable, respected, mutually respected, um, or respectful process. And I do applaud this administration, the Biden administration, so far so good uh, in terms of uh, sort of reverting back to that kind of process. So uh, I think that's that's good news. Uh, on Can you elaborate what that process is, Ambassador Lute? Is that are you well, talking about deputies and principals committee meetings sure. or Yeah, no, we're talking about sort of the classic interagency process that begins actually below the deputies level, right? At some sort of policy uh, interagency policy committee or some sort of uh, lower level, typically at the assistant secretary level or, or below that then bubbles up um, information and courses of action and so forth, first to the deputies committee, eventually to the principals committee, and ultimately to the decision maker. Uh, when the decision maker, the president himself, is in the chair at National Security Council meetings, right? Um, but by reverting to the sort of respectful norm, what I mean is meetings that are predictable, uh, meetings that stay on agenda. Uh, meetings that are respectful of the participants' time, so they they don't they don't start late, they don't go overly long, they're not too frequent, but they're frequent enough. Uh, meetings that feature um, preparatory materials that get out sufficiently in advance of the meeting, so that unlike the reports in uh, Secretary Gates' uh, book, Duty, uh, where he he lamented that frequently he was reading prep memos on the drive from the Pentagon to the West Wing, right? Because he had received them so late. So these are elements of sort of the subtle discipline of the interagency process that lends to good civil military relations because it is uh, predictable. It does allow for the fact that all the participants have day jobs uh, back in their own parent agencies. Um, And it, it communicates a level of mutual respect that is very important because, as Kari said, it, that in turn builds trust, right? So you have to have trust in the process, but you also have to have trust in one another. And then finally, um, this kind of subtle discipline that means that the interagency process stays within the interagency and doesn't spill over during the decision-making process. 
right, doesn't spill over into the public arena. Um, and, and if it does spill over by way of uh, leaks uh, or unfortunate public uh, disclosure of what's going on inside the White House Situation Room, inside the process, that's enormously corrosive to good civil-military relations because it suggests to the participants in the Situation Room that what they say there, they may read the next day in the Washington Post or the New York Times. And I think too many times in the last 20 years, we had disclosures that were, that, that were inappropriate because what was taking place in the Situation Room didn't remain in the Situation Room. So these are some elements of what I mean by sort of the subtle discipline of the interagency process. And, and again, I applaud the current administration for reverting back to many of these norms. Awesome. No, I, I really appreciate that insight. Dr. Lee, what do you think uh, civilian leaders felt was lacking for military judgments or assessments during the war in Afghanistan? So I think it varies um, based on what administration you're talking about. In the Obama administration, what was very clear, um, they felt they lacked options that when you go into the decision to surge in 2009, um, that they believed the military had essentially settled on a strategy. They had settled on what they wanted to happen and uh, were offering kind of variations of that without ever really seriously considering what else that might look like um, or what other forms that could take. And Obama ends up and um, then Vice President Biden ends up doing a bit of a runaround um, the the Joint Chiefs in order to to try and at least explore what other potential strategies might look like. Um, during the Trump years, kind of at the end of Obama and then during the Trump years, though, what you really saw was the military never seriously taking political guidance and developing an exit strategy for Afghanistan, despite the fact that Trump was adamant uh, that he wanted to leave, that when Biden came into office, he was adamant that he wanted to leave. Uh, you never really saw a, a careful planning process for what withdrawal would look like. Rather, the mili military leaders felt like they could consistently just kick the can down the road and, you know, one more year, one more year, one more fighting season um, and, you know, have political leaders kind of acquiesce to that rather than really taking the civilian guidance to heart and saying, okay, this is what the civilian elected officials want. And it's our responsibility to then provide, you know, a, a way to make that happen. Yeah, Kari, let me just weigh in on this as well. This is a really important question. Uh, I think another dynamic is that after the Trump's after the Trump administration signing of the agreement with the Taliban in February of 2020, Right. So a full year before Biden takes office. Right. There was insufficient planning. But beyond that, right, there was a lot of back channel messages to our Afghan partners and to many NATO allies that, in fact, this time will pass. Uh, and you don't you know, we're not going to ever leave. We've got your backs. We'll be shoulder to shoulder. Right. And these persistent reassurances left the Ghani government, for sure, unclear as to exactly what was going to happen. Now, there are a lot of other contributing factors to that. You know, the Ghani government wasn't involved in the negotiation. The Ghani government um, was late in being uh, made aware of what was in the agreement and in the Non early non-disclosed uh, annexes to the agreement and so forth. But this constant sort of competing narratives of are we staying or are we, are we leaving, I think contributed to uh, what we saw uh, later in 2021. Uh, Ranjan, in answer to your basic question, what, what could the military do, right? I think there's a, there's a, a requirement for the military assess risk not only risk of pursuing the recommended option, right? So in the case of the 2009 surge, the risk of contributing another uh, or committing another 40,000 American troops, but the risk of, uh, of taking that option as well. 
So we tend to be good at the negative. So what's the risk of not doing, Mr. President, what I'm asking you to do, what I'm recommending you do? We should turn that on its head. What's the risk of doing what I'm recommending you do? And if we had taken that sort of sort of reverse risk or inverted risk with regard to counterinsurgency in Afghanistan, we might have gotten to some of the complexity of trying to conduct counterinsurgency in what was the fourth poorest country in the world when, um, when we intervened in 2001 with a sanctuary next door uh, like Pakistan against a, uh, a nationalist, uh, deeply rooted Taliban insurgency uh, in opposition to an endemically corrupt government. And had we gotten to some of those underlying features, right, we might have had a bit more reality in, our, uh, in the risk assessment of pursuing large-scale counterinsurgency in Afghanistan. But we didn't do that. We got a lot of risk in terms of if you don't abide by what I'm recommending, these are the risks. We didn't get enough of the inverted risk, which is what happens if you do accept my recommendation. So you talk about framing assessments in terms of risk, Ambassador Lute. What about in terms of time? So I've heard one expert say, hey, what would our assessment of Afghanistan been if we'd known we were going to be there for 20 years? Or, you know, we, we struggle with this temporal issue um, because between two-year election cycles and one-year deployments, we really lack the forcing function to take a long view of war. So, and we can already see interest and in well waning for Ukraine uh, as a result of that. So how do we overcome that or how should the military bridge efforts over election cycles? Well, I think there, there are a number of dimensions of this. On the military side, I think we need to think seriously about how we build what I call campaign continuity. And what I mean by that is the ability to maintain a consistent, um, realistic campaign over time and not over a year but over five or 10 years, and as it turns out in Afghanistan, over 20 years, right? And there are a number of features here that defied or negated campaign continuity. First, most obviously was our relatively short tour links. You know, most army units went to Afghanistan as units, spent a year there, and then handed off wholesale to another unit. You know, the, the not so the, the not so unrealistic uh, storyline here is that the new unit would come in, uh, assess that things were desperately bad, um, spend about the next 10 months um, approving their campaign plan and instituting their campaign plan only to uh, achieve at, at the 12th month uh, relative success and a successful handoff to the replacement who would start the process all over again, right? With a, my God, things are a disaster and, you know, so forth. Um, so this 12-month cycle was, I think, was not helpful. And by the way, the 12-month major army headquarters cycle was the longest of the forces employed. I mean, uh, uh, black soft went at 90-day intervals. White soft typically went at three or four-month intervals. The Marines went at sometimes six-month, sometimes nine-month intervals, uh, and, and so forth. Our embassies uh, rotated on uh, a relatively short scale. Our intel officers rotated on a, a relatively short scale. And none of this was synchronized. You know, So basically, the government of Afghanistan over 20 years got to meet a lot of Americans, okay, but not a many effective American teams, which is what it takes if you want to meld together the dimensions of a campaign. So military, civilian, um, uh, embassy workers, development workers, intelligence officers, and so forth. Uh, so there's a lot to learn here, I think, about how we f force generate the military contribution to an interagency team, but then further and the, even harder, how do we make sense of the military contribution in a team setting so that, for example, you can imagine I mean, some sort of quick off the off the cuff ideas would be that military commanders and ambassadors are confirmed uh, as teams. 
so they're nominated as teams. They, they appear before Congress. They're confirmed as teams. They serve together uh, as a team. They report back to the administration, the executive branch, and to Congress as a team. And they're there for a while. They're not there for a short of, sort of a short war perspective. Um, and you can, I think this reopens the debate of do we do unit replacement in a long campaign like Afghanistan or are individual replacements better? Would we have been better off to plant division level flags in regional command east at Bagram and have that division flag there for years while we rotated individual staff officers and so forth beneath the flag? Would that have contributed to campaign continuity? Uh, so I think there's a major lesson to be discovered here. So I'm, I object to the term of lessons learned because typically we don't actually learn them, right? We observe lessons and they go on the shelf somewhere. But a, a lesson to be, to be learned uh, has to do with this notion of campaign continuity. Okay. Dr. Lee, did you have any comments on, you know, how we overcome our temporal issue with assessments? So I think Ambassador Lutz's point about uh, military continuity and rotating in and out of theater is a really excellent one. I'm going to disagree a little bit with the premise of the the prior kind of question about election cycles, though. Um, I don't necessarily think that the U.S. is incapable of taking a long-term view when it comes to war and um, I think what the issue tends to be is that uh, military leaders don't tend to see elections as legitimate reasons why uh, strategy should be altered in any given point. Um, and this gets to a sense that is kind of pervasive across the military that politics is a dirty word. And any kind of political um, intrusion into a very good, well-thought-out military strategy is not a legitimate intrusion. It's not a legitimate thing that should happen. This is really problematic. And uh, I, I would argue that you know, in developing strategy and military advice, leaders do need to take politics into account, both the international and the domestic variety. Um, and they should do it in three ways. The first is uh, whether it's really matching with civilian political aims. So if the civilian political aim is withdrawal, right, what does that strategy look like? And what does that uh, military advice look like? Um, the second is in thinking about second and third order effects. There can be all kinds of political implications to military strategies. For example, the surge in Afghanistan led to uh, increased deployment times and increased, you know, hardship for the for the military and had real implications for the all volunteer force going forward. Third, I think what's really important, and this gets to our discussion about timelines, military leaders need to take into account whether the strategy that they're offering is sustainable, and that can be sustainable both from an international partner context but also sustainable from a domestic political context. Can the American people, are the American people going to be willing to support a conflict for four or five or six years? What kind of assumptions does a, does a given strategy make about how long something's going to take and how long the American people are going to have to support it? And so those are really important factors that leaders need to be taking into account uh, even thus, you know, we don't necessarily want to think about the military as being a political actor. We have traditionally had a lot of different strategies in order to make military operations sustainable. The first is simply by having an all-volunteer force. Uh, the fact that there isn't a draft and it doesn't touch the lives of every American and the civil-military gap has grown so dramatically inherently makes military operations more sustainable across time because fewer Americans are feeling the effect of that. The second is by financing wars through debt. So we tend to make strategies sustainable by not inflicting costs on the American people for it. And the fact that we don't finance our wars through tax increases anymore and instead finance them primarily through debt is an important part of how we make strategies sustainable. And you see this going on in Ukraine as well, right? When we're offering military aid and aid to Ukraine, this is all being financed on a credit card. And so the American people are not feeling the costs of uh, aid to Ukraine. 
And the second way that we do this is actually decreasing coverage of kind of far and away adventures in the lead up to an election. And we kind of downplay what we're doing across the world and downplay what's going on over there leading up to an election in the hopes that the American people are going to be focused on uh, more domestic matters. That's why you take a deep breath over there, Doug, something you'd like to add. Well, yeah, just one additional point. You know, this notion of the military assessing for itself a requirement to be apolitical. You hear this all the time. And I absolutely agree with Kari. You you can't escape the politics of national level policy. It is fundamentally political. What the military should aim to be, and I think this is reflected in the the letter you mentioned up front, Ranj, from the former chairman, former secretaries of defense, is is nonpartisan. So they should, should, they should aim to re- steer clear of partisan politics, uh, but they can't avoid, they can't, they don't, there's no magic eraser that, that, uh, that means that they can avoid uh, politics. I mean, when the door, the situation room closes, it's fundamentally a political conversation, uh, but not necessarily a partisan conversation. And I think we need to be, precise in our language here. And look, even even decisions inside the Pentagon are fundamentally political. Army, Air Force, Air Force, Navy, uh, active reserve, uh, and, and so forth. Those are all political uh, conversations, uh, but they're not necessarily partisan. Yeah, I've definitely heard that theme more recently in terms of the impossibility of being apolitical, but absolutely feasible to be nonpartisan. So that's definitely emanating out there. I want to go back. I would, a, a few I'm sorry, ago. Raj. I'm oh, going to go jump in there really fast um, because I think it's becoming more difficult. And you want to talk about some of the challenges that exist in civil military relations today. The current environment of hyperpolarization makes that increasingly harder, where even routine things like readiness and vaccine mandates right, become partisan. Um, things that the military previously had complete control over and were, you know, seen as regular good order and discipline are now all of a sudden partisan issues because of how polarized we as a society have become. And so I think, you know, 20 years ago, I, I hate to say this, I think it was easier to be nonpartisan. And today, anything one says can be taken into a partisan context. And that is a that's a real challenge for leaders today. Yeah, you just saw that. And the last week, our senior leaders spin up on the Hill, attesting to diversity, equality, inclusiveness programs, mostly which are mandated through NDAAs. But I want to go back and uh, focus on what you were talking about in terms of the elements of the campaign, uh, Ambassador Lute. And you talked a lot about Department of State of Ambassadors. You know, it seems that success in Afghanistan was not only contingent on the capability and capacity of the Afghan National Defense and Security Forces, but the viability of the Afghan government. So how come you didn't see combined assessments between Department of Defense and other U.S. government stakeholders like Department of State? And what are the mechanisms to get there? Well, you're right. I mean, especially in a counterinsurgency environment. I mean, counterinsurgency is all about the partner government, right? I mean, this has us as outsiders intervening in a theater like Afghanistan in support of a partner government, the the government of Afghanistan. So the viability of that government, the legitimacy of the government, the ability for it to work through its economic and political and social issues is fundamental to the success potential of counterinsurgency. So there should be no way that we do sort of military assessments in a counterinsurgency environment absent the political dimension, uh, because it just defies the reason that we're there. Now, why didn't we do a better job? Um, Look, from my perspective on the National Security Council staff, a contributing factor was that the bureaucracies in Washington hate to have their homework graded. Um, They hate to be held to metrics. They, uh, they don't like timelines. They don't like metrics. It's as though the voices from the bureaucratic home bases in Washington, so the Pentagon, Foggy Bottom, the CIA, and so forth, right? The, 
the home bases. It's as though they would prefer assessment of, look, we'll tell you, White House, uh, when, uh, when we're done, rather than being held to a set of standards across time. In early to mid-2009, there was an attempt by the National Security Council staff to establish what was called the Strategic Implementation Plan, right? And this was a quarterly assessment program uh, across all the dimensions, to include the dimensions we're talking about here. So military, economic, political, regional, uh, and so forth, right? All the dimensions of the Afghan campaign. Uh, and it was extraordinarily difficult to get the inputs from the from the uh, bureaucracies required to present to the president an assessment of how we were doing. Um, so I think, you know, a step in the right direction was uh, the required, the mandated congressional reports. Uh, but look, the Congress only mandated that the National Defense Authorization Act only mandated that Department of Defense report on Department of Defense to the Congress, right? Really, as your question suggests, what we need is the next step, which is how do you meld the different dimensions of a political military campaign together so that you actually have a campaign and not just a one-dimensional approach? So I think the only thing that I really have to add is that it's a trade-off. Combined assessments take time. And combined assessments require interagency coordination, and it requires people to talk to, uh, to talk to each other. And so, why no combined assessments from DoD and Department of State? Uh, I think number one, that's why you have an NSC is to coordinate what's coming in from all of the different agencies and executive branch, and so that's fundamentally in their job jar. Uh, but second, if you're requiring DoD and DOS to come up with uh, combined assessments, now all of a sudden that's going to take a lot longer for you to get your metrics of progress in. It's going to take a lot longer for you to then be reporting. It's going to make it harder to uh, make changes in real time. This goes back a little bit as well to our earlier point about interagency teamwork, right? So you can imagine that combined assessments, interagency assessments, uh, would be facilitated if you had a meaningful sense of teamwork out in the theater, right? And if you look across the 20 years of Iraq and Afghanistan, only occasionally did we actually have meaningful teamwork, a teamwork-like relationship between the senior general in theater and the ambassador in theater. I mean, probably the, now the classic case is Petraeus Crocker in Baghdad. Right. But before that, uh, Zal Khalazad and Dave Barno had that kind of working relationship in Afghanistan. And what do I mean by that? I mean that typically the military side of that team subordinates itself and moves to co-locate with the ambassador. So if you went to Baghdad during the Petraeus Crocker years, you went to one building and they shared an office space. That's really meaningful. Right, as opposed to the military residing somewhere else on its own headquarters. Right, it means that the civil military staffs meld into uh, developing one campaign plan, so a joint civil military campaign plan. And if you have this kind of teamwork in theater, in Kabul and in Baghdad, then joint assessments are sort of the natural byproduct. But if you try to generate from the top down, if you try to mandate that kind of teamwork, uh, it's extraordinarily difficult. And there are all kinds of bureaucratic antibodies to doing so. So it goes back to the point, my point earlier about campaign continuity and civil military teams. Yeah. So in the absence of, of combined reporting, what we have is Congress levied a number of reporting and assessment requirements on DOD through the annual National Defense Authorization Act. And the end state was a smattering of tactical data points that DOD submitted semi-annually in a report entitled Enhancing Security and Stability in Afghanistan. So is there a better way to do this? You know, that report may not have been the form, but how should the military frame a strategic discussion with civilian leaders to discuss progress, 
stagnation, or even defeat? Well, it'd be a good thing if, if it weren't just DOD reporting to the Hask and the Sask, right? It'd be much better to have uh, state and defense jointly reporting, ideally by way of joint testimony. I mean, when's the last time you had the Secretary of Defense and Secretary of State seated at the table together on a project that requires civil military coordination? Uh, I think that would be much better. And you can even imagine joint committee sessions, right? Uh, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and the Senate Armed Services Committee. That would be good. But to go back to Kari's point, this is fundamentally, first and foremost, an executive branch responsibility. It's the executive branch that sets the course on a strategy, right? It is the executive branch's responsibility then to oversee implementation. And, And this, I think, goes to another lesson of the last 20 years or so. We spend a lot of time and attention, a lot of executive branch White House bandwidth on decision-making. We tend not to spend requisite time and energy and bandwidth on execution, on implementation. It's almost as if with the president's decision, there's an assumption that, well, of course, we're all going to do exactly what was just decided. That's not a safe assumption. (laughs) The implementation phase requires just as much focus, just as much energy as the decision phase, but we tend to neglect the implementation phase uh, relative to uh, the time we spend on on the decision. Yeah, it also assumes the impact you intended, which uh, clearly didn't didn't happen in Afghanistan. Dr. Lee? Right, right. Uh, I agree wholeheartedly with everything that Ambassador Lute said, Um, but I would also add, let's not neglect that Congress does have a very important role in oversight. And this is a role that they have historically abdicated uh, and increasingly abdicated since what we might you know, think about the imperial presidency in Nixon. Um, the, what I would say is uh, there is, of course, a better way to report to Congress than by burying Congress people in minutiae. Um, But it is up to Congress, not the military, to then come back and ask better questions. It is their responsibility to say, no, DOD, that is not what I asked you for. Come back and give me a better product or to ask hard questions about why are you telling me this? And this is it is understandable to some degree. Um, DOD is going to they're going to behave like any other organization and try to protect their autonomy and their independence. And a good way to do that is by um, not avoiding, but by you know answering congressional calls for oversight in a way that is least likely to generate pushback. That is completely understandable. Um, and with a declining expertise uh, in the military and declining number of veterans in Congress, it's also understandable that Congress wouldn't want to push back. And there's no political upside at this point, and especially during the war in Afghanistan, there was no political upside for Congress people to push back against the military. There was no um, there was no reward in it. And so what you saw is this kind of consistent abdication of oversight responsibilities amongst Congress, with the exception of very few people who occasionally would make a stink. Um, but that just degraded over over twenty years, and so. My greatest hope is that Congress will, you know, step back up and assume that responsibility and actually do uh, do good oversight and thorough oversight over future military operations, including Ukraine, today. Um, and, but I don't think it's a military. I don't think the military necessarily needs to play a role in that. That's that's a job for people in Congress. You know, Raj, um, an interesting dynamic here is that you had this, if you line up these periodic Department of Defense reports to Congress, right, and you line them up and compare them to the sorts of reports that later came from the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan, the SIGAR reports, the John Sopko um, reports, right, you see a very distinct difference, right? You see Sopko willing to 
be exceptionally candid, even when the news was bad, right? And when you go back over the periodic DOD reports, there's a constant sense of sort of optimistic reporting. Now, not to the extent, I'm not claiming anybody here was deceiving, right? But there's a, a very, I think, unhealthy dose of persistent optimism in the DOD reporting that is not what you get from the spe special inspector general. So there's there's kind of contrast here that I think is is interesting. Yeah, definitely. Dr. Lee, I've, I've heard you talk about through the course of your comments, you know, how we kind of ended up in a stasis in terms of, you know, we finance this by debt, uh, all volunteer force and media cycles, and then just recently congressional apathy. Um, so it's kind of easy to see how the can was kicked for a number of years. Um, you know, how do we avoid doing that going forward? And what role does the military play in this? So the public is fundamentally unengaged and uninformed about not only what the military is, but especially what it does when it goes abroad. Um, what's more, they don't feel like they have the right to have an opinion about it. And this is shown consistently in polling. The number of people who say that they have no opinion about later in the wars uh, the number of people who said that they they had no opinion about the war in Afghanistan was shockingly high, um, which is not what you want for public engagement in any kind of conflict where you're sending American men and women overseas. So the solution here, I think, is the public absolutely has to be brought back in and they have to be brought back into to the conversation. They have to be made more aware of who the military is and where they are serving and the importance of, or lack of importance of conflicts that we're engaged in abroad. There's a big role for this in the media. There is a big role for the military to play though as well. And uh, so that they can kind of bridge the civil military gap and also to communicate to the American public that they have to be informed that the public is the ultimate check on power and the ultimate check on both executive and congressional power. And the military is not that check. So the public cannot abdicate its own oversight responsibilities and just trust the military. They have to be engaged in the conversation. Um, I will again reiterate my uh my plea to reinvigorate oversight, especially with regards to, in today's conflicts, planning and preparation in the Indo-Pacific and what a China and Taiwan conflict might look like uh, today. And then finally, I think the military needs to work on building trust, rebuilding some of that lost trust with the American people, but doing it for the right reasons, rather than simply wanting the American people to like the military so that they won't ask hard questions Trust is important. Public trust in the military is important because the public needs to have faith in the military's ability to provide security for the state. And that's fundamentally what increasing public faith and confidence in the military is about. Not about not asking hard questions and not about not exercising judgment about military operations or asking, preferring to defer to military expertise, but fundamentally about having confidence in state institutions to protect the American people and provide state security. So that lends nicely kind of to the final question about towards rebuilding trust. And what do you think some of the single most important things the military can do to cultivate trust with our civilian leaders? So I think uh, fundamentally the military has to deliver um, and it has to deliver as an interagency component, right? So it's often we're not delivering by ourselves, uh, simply a military, um, but we have to, we have to deliver on strategy. And, and, you know, as I remember sessions in the white house situation room, as you look around that table, um, there aren't many civilian leaders who are really strategists, right? You get academics, you get political figures, you get corporate lawyers, you get a, a blend of Americans at the senior civilian leadership table. But the, the standard bearers of strategy ought to be the uniform military. 
participants around the Situation Room table, right? Who else studies strategy? I mean, here we are on a war college podcast, right? I mean, come on. I mean, it's the military does strategy. And I'm not suggesting that the military take a dominant role in strategy design and implementation. But there is a role, I think, to play as the standard bearers for good strategy, right? And, and by standards, I'm talking about things like not attempting to design a strategy without a thorough understanding of the setting. Like, did we really understand Afghanistan well enough or Iraq well enough pre-invasion, right, uh, to design a realistic strategy? And then a realistic strategy that sets not overly ambitious goals, right? What were we trying to do in Afghanistan, given the Afghanistan we we uh, inherited, if you will, right, that we accepted in late 2001? Um, did the ends, ways, and means line up over time, right? What we were trying to achieve, how we went about achieving, and the resources the resources devoted, ends, ways, and means. Did that line up? And if they fell out of alignment, you know, there could have been opportunities for the military to raise its hand and say, look, this is, this is what we're saying we're going to achieve is not realistically achievable with these resources. Now, you can argue that the McChrystal attempt to do that in 2009 was a step in strategy alignment, right? So, but but that has to be persistent. That has to be almost on a semi-annual or annual basis because strategy falls out of alignment. And then finally, I think the military can be a voice at the Situation Room table, a voice of humility. That is to say, look, these are the things we know but, you know, there are all sorts of things we don't know that can hit us in the flank, right? That can surprise us, that can, that can upset this strategic alignment. And we need to at least account for those unknowns and accept the fact that when Americans, as privileged and as well-off as we are, seek to intervene in a place as far away and foreign as Afghanistan, there's a lot that we don't know. Uh, and so both strive towards expertise, but a countervailing balance with humility, I think are, are key strategic attributes that the military can lend to, lend to the civil military equation. So I will, um, Ambassador Lute has given us a couple of really great do's. I'm going to give three don'ts in order to uh, re rebuild trust, what not to do in order to rebuild trust. The first is uh, avoid politicization. So particularly in today's kind of toxic political atmosphere and hyper-polarized environment, it's very easy for the military to get pulled into partisan political fights. Um, I think that recent testimony actually by army senior leaders has been fantastic in this and reminding Congress and the American public that they are nonpartisan, that they reflect, you know, a, an oath to the constitution to uphold the, uh, to uphold the U S constitution and really trying to stay out of the, the crossfire and the partisan political fray. If you don't do that, then you risk then you destroy trust between yourself and senior leaders. If not in this administration, then certainly in the next one, or you know when parties change over, you know this is an enduring feature of American democracy. The second is to avoid leaks. Leaks are unbelievably damaging for trust, um, both in the short term and the long term. And so having fidelity on what gets said in the room stays in the room and does not make it its way to the Washington Post. That's a really good way. It's a really good way to destroy trust and uh, really important to keeping it. And then the third is building off of what Ambassador Lute said, avoiding actually excess optimism. I think a big part of why some people don't trust the military is because they feel like they're a little bit out of touch with what was going on in Afghanistan. You constantly read these rosy reports, we're just around the corner, we're about to, we're about to turn the tide. And at some point, Anybody could read the writing on the wall and see that this isn't going to turn in our favor anytime soon. And so avoiding that, that optimism uh, that is in many ways so central and core to military identity, 
But when you're doing public assessments and when you're interacting with senior leaders, you risk not being taken seriously if you remain so excessively optimistic. So leaning into that humility, leaning into what is it we don't know, and also resisting the temptation to paint things in always a rosy picture. Yes, sir, we can get the job done. Uh, I think will go a long way towards rebuilding some of that trust. Well, I want to thank you both for your participation today. Uh, We definitely ended this uh, three-part series on Afghanistan on a high note, just tremendously thoughtful discussion. So thank you for your participation. Thank you for the invitation. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. There is a natural, healthy tension in civil-military relations. Combined with the fact that Americans are competitive, in the face of loss, there is anger, frustration, and oftentimes blame. Today, we heard how to cultivate trust in civil-military relations a respectful dialogue, a disciplined interagency process, eliminating leaks, articulating risk, campaign continuity, recognizing that politics are fundamental in warfare, a meaningful sense of teamwork, and balancing military expertise with humility. As the September 2022 open letter to the war on rocks from the last two decades of secretaries of defense and chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff states, mutual trust, Trust upward that civilian leaders will rigorously explore alternatives that are best for the country, regardless of the implications for partisan politics. And trust downward that the military will faithfully implement directives that run counter to the professional military preference helps overcome the friction in civil military relations. It is time to build that reservoir of trust once again, as the next crisis, the war in Ukraine, is already upon us. Thank you again to Ambassador Lute and Dr. Lee. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. Please subscribe to A Better Peace on your podcatcher of choice. This conversation is over, but we look forward to welcoming you again. Until next time from the War Room, I'm Lieutenant Colonel Ranjani Donaraj. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.